Please be seated. Good evening to you. Isaiah chapter 57 this evening. On Sunday nights we do go through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. If you're with us tonight and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles with Bibles right now and and they'll give you a Bible if you get their attention and it'll be marked to our passage tonight. That way you can hear the Word but read along as well and uh, it'll have double the impact uh, in your life as a result. If you don't own a Bible, make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you um, tonight. We come to chapter 57 and it's kind of a little bit more of the same and it's uh, kind of a, you know, candidly a grim period in the history of uh, the southern kingdom of Judah. Isaiah is ministering to uh, God's people, the Jews, and um, and for the most part, they're living very much an apostate relationship with God. There's a, a godly remnant among them. Uh, there's always a godly remnant among uh, in the world, no matter how bad the world gets or how apostate Christianity gets or um, the worship of the Lord gets. And so... But this is kind of the condition that things are in, and so uh, God is forced to continue to confront them with their sin and denounce their sin and call them to repentance. And so he continues here tonight in chapter 57. The word of the Lord through Isaiah. The righteous man perishes, and no one takes it to heart. Merciful men are taken away, and no one considers that the righteous is taken away from evil. He shall enter into peace, and they shall rest in their beds, each one walking in his uprightness. God is speaking about the fact that a judgment is going to come upon the southern kingdom of Judah. It would take the form of the Babylonian invasion, and that the situation as a result of this invasion would become so great that when the righteous died prior to that invasion... And the righteous were being persecuted by even God's people at this point in the history of Judah. And the righteous were dying. The righteous were being persecuted. And as this persecution was going on, the righteous were dying, being taken up into heaven. God was declaring to the uh, uh, Jews in Judah that he was allowing this to occur and or as his way of sparing them the horrors of the judgment that he was going to bring upon his people by means of the Babylonian uh, invasion. It is interesting to consider, and these couple of verses are very fascinating in the Scriptures, to consider the fact that God can see a judgment or coming upon the earth that is so great, uh, a judgment that he is going to bring, that he will even allow the martyrdom of his people, the death of his people to occur, because as horrific as that martyrdom might be, it is delivering them from a greater evil, the greatness of his judgment that he is about to bring upon the earth. I think that, for instance, uh, if you're anything like me, and I'm sure many of you are, when we watched those 21 brothers on the shore of the Mediterranean Sea, Egyptian Coptic Christians who had their uh, heads cut off by um, ISIS or some, you know, affiliate of ISIS. 
we look at it, we don't have an army as Christians. We don't say, well, where's the Christian army we can send in and get vengeance related to this? And yet we know in our heart that God has the ability to wipe those people out that did this great crime against God and against humanity even, and yet God didn't do that. You look at it and sometimes we can wonder about it. Why would God allow that? He could have stopped their hearts in a second. He could have, the Bible says that He holds our very next breath in His hands. They could have suffocated on the video and never been able to do it, and yet He did it. And I'll tell you, when you see that kind of a thing going on within a nation or within a part of the world where God's people and the righteous Christians are being martyred, they're being killed for simply loving God and obeying His Word, then that is a part of the world or a group of people that is persecuting God's people where they ought to look very, very hard at the fact that the reason that they're getting away with it at the moment is that God is storing up a judgment that He is going to pour out on them that is greater than anything that is they ever did in persecuting the Christians. I wouldn't want to be a member of ISIS to save my life. No matter what God, whatever happens to them in this life, I know what happens in the life to come. I, when you look at a country like Iraq today, or Iran rather, that is exporting so much of this persecution and violence against Christians and anyone that is non-Islamic in the world today, and you say, look at what they're getting away with, and it's interesting to just step back and realize God may be removing His people from these particular environments because He is storing up a judgment that He is going to pour out upon them that He does not want His people to be present to experience. It is a sobering thing to think about. And God, uh, precious in the eyes of the Lord, is the death of His saints. And the Lord is present when His people die. He was present at that scene. I think one of the hardest things that we deal with, even as Christians, the struggle uh, in life, even a part of kind of <clears throat> the geopolitical situation, <clears throat> excuse me, of ancient Judah and the geopolitical uh, condition of the world today, is sometimes when we experience or we witness the death of the righteous, and sometimes a person will die, a good person, a merciful person, and they will die what we consider to be a premature death. They die in their prime. We look at this as a good person. This was a good man. This was a good woman. And this may speak to one of your fathers or your mothers that they went home to be with the Lord in their 30s, their 40s, their 50s, and, and then yet you have dictators who are ruining their countries and destroying people and starving them to death in Africa who are living into their 80s and their 90s. And it doesn't add up to us. And when someone who is righteous and merciful dies a death that we consider to be premature, oftentimes that's one of the greatest kind of crises that, of faith that uh, many of us will, will faith, face. And I think that many of us will sooner or later face that in the course of our lives where a godly man or woman dies in the prime of life and yet the wicked just continue to move on into not only old age but they outlive all of the odds 
and you see people who in our minds die prematurely because of cancer or because of some other disease or because of an automobile accident and it can rock our world and then especially heartbreaking is when a a, a death that we consider to be premature uh, occurs in a child an innocent child they're born with a birth defect or uh, they fall and 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 die and it's a tragic accident that's occurred or a drowning or something like that. And we can never ever know all the whys and the hows of, of life this side of heaven. But here, and I think about it not often, but I think about it very regularly when I hear about the death of a righteous person or the death of a young child, and it seems untimely to me, and it seems untimely to all of us, that it isn't always necessarily true, but we ought to factor it into our thinking in the light of these two verses, is that to look at that and say, God, I don't understand everything that happened here. I don't want to presume to know exactly every in and out, but to realize that there is the possibility that God has taken someone out of this world, despite how righteous and good and merciful they are and innocent they are, but from the his infinite perspective, his knowledge of everything, that he removes them, takes them home to heaven in order to spare them a greater evil or a greater difficulty that was going to come into their life later. And it is a possibility. We can't look and say, ah, that's what happened in each and every one of these situations. But we do know from this passage that God can do that. And that explanation uh, is in play. When we are faced with what we don't know in life, it's important for us to fall back on what we do know in situations like that. And what we do know is that God loves us. Uh, God loves this person that died. God cares for this person that died. And when the person is a Christian, we realize that the Lord has numbered their days. And that's one of the things that we really need to realize and, and to uh, accept as a fact related to our lives is that the Lord numbers our days. One of the great things about reading um, uh, significant, really any Christian biography where you're reading about the great lives that men and, uh, that, of men and women that God has used historically for the church to uh, read about how many of them died in the mission field or not even on the mission field, and they died at 30 years of age. And it was like, how could they know what they knew? How could they have the relationship with God that they had so young? And then with, with the hopes of them having maybe 40 and 50 years out in front of them, and what would this man or this woman be at 70 or be at 80 if this is what they are at 30? And then they're dead. And their home gone into heaven. And so, but the Lord numbers our days. He's the one that knows how long our ministries are to be. There's, there are no premature deaths. That's why I said when we perceive a death to be premature, God knows how long our lives are to be, and He knows when our ministries are over, and He knows when it is then time to take us into heaven. And when our ministries are over, it's time to go to heaven. God has, I'm sure you're the same way, in my life, He has made me so dependent upon His grace. Um, he gets me through each day. I, I, 
I, sometimes I think about my fair lady. I've grown accustomed to your face. You're breathing out and breathing in. I was serenely independent before the day we met. Surely I can always be that way again. I wish I could memorize scripture like this. But I went to see my fair lady, you know. And, um, but God, and I think about it in terms of the Lord, this dependence upon him, the relationship. I wouldn't want to be here not five minutes longer then then his grace is going to be upon my life and so the recognition he does number our days there's a lot that's a mystery about all of it all of our comings and our goings in life and uh, sometimes though and i think it's helpful for us as christians to know that the lord can operate in this way now the greatest fulfillment of isaiah chapter 57 verses 1 and 2 is yet future for the church because the fact of the matter is, is that Jesus is going to return and he is going to remove the entire body of Christ from this world. He is going to rapture us. He is going to snatch us up out of here prior to the great tribulation when he is going to pour his wrath and ju- his judgment out upon a world that has openly rejected his son. And so uh, here is this, uh, in, in some respects, a whole generation of people will leave the earth prematurely, but again, in order to be delivered from uh, a, a judgment that God doesn't want any of us to be a, a part of, his judgment upon the world during the great tribulation. In verse 3 and through the rest of the chapter here, he uh, denounces Judah for their idolatry and um, and the language that he uses here, it, it is sexual in nature. It is um, he uh, speaks of their spiritual idolatry in terms of of adultery, and that's how God views uh, idolatry in our lives. He views it as uh, spiritual adultery. Um, I'm sure one of the most painful things that a person can experience in their life is to have their married partner, their husband or wife, commit adultery against them. And the pain of that, the level of, of, uh, of violation of trust, violation of love, etc., etc. And I don't um, uh, dwell on it in order to kind of pick at any wounds that any of us might have in this room in that way, either having had that committed against us or been the one that committed adultery. But it is, I think, sobering for us in a healthy way to realize that that's how God sees it. And it's not just how he sees it intellectually. It is how he feels it. Um, To love something else in life, some created thing. And in the universe, there's two things. There's God, the creator, and everything else, the creation. So to love anything else in the world more than I love God and, and to give my heart, my mind, my soul, and my strength to someone, to something else other than God, that pains God. That's a violation of his trust. It's a violation of his love. And I don't know if there's that kind of sobriety concerning sin that much anymore, but the Bible does nurture it, and I think that it's very healthy for us to 
view it in that way. I want to, I want to, we want to bless his heart and bless his life for how good he's been to us. We certainly don't want to cause him pain and not that kind of pain. And so he rebukes their spiritual adultery in, in using that kind of imagery and terminology. But come here, you sons of the sorceress and offspring of the adulterer and the harlot, Whom do you ridicule? Against whom do you make a wide mouth and stick out the tongue? Are you not children of transgression, offspring of falsehood? And so they were involved in spiritual adultery, involved in idolatry, and God viewed it as a mocking of him. As he describes it there in verse 4, someone mocks you, verse uh, yeah, verse 4 there, where they stick out their tongue at you or behind your back or this kind of a thing. And God uh, looks at this uh, spiritual idolatry as something of just mocking him. It's how he, uh, how he took it and how he hurt him. And he said, are you not children of transgression, offspring of falsehood? And then he speaks of the fact that this idolatry filled the land of Judah. He said, inflaming yourselves with gods under every green tree. Imagine uh, worshiping these idols, a lot of sexual immorality involved with all of it. Out in the open, under the trees in, in the Judah, the land that was supposed to be set aside to God, to be holy, an example to the world of holiness. And he said, slaying the children in the valleys, they were even at this time... Uh, killing their children, offering their children to Molech. And Molech was a pagan god where the firstborn would be offered to, uh, to the gods of, uh, uh, to, to Molech by the people that worshipped Molech. They would heat Molech up, whether out of stone or out of metal, till he was white hot or red hot. And then they would take their child, and then Molech was out like this with its arms, is how they would fashion it, and then place their child into the, the burning arms. Imagine, this is God's people that were engaged in this, uh, this kind of thing and offering their children in this way and under the clefts of the rocks. Among the smooth stones of the stream is your portion. They, they are your lot. Even to them you have poured a drink offering and you have offered a grain offering. Should I receive comfort in these? On a lofty and high mountain you have set your bed. Even there you went up to offer sacrifice. So he's talking about all over the land. In just a shameless way, people are, his people are engaged in idolatry, openly disobeying his word. And he said they ought to have been ashamed of it, and yet they're completely shameless. And today we live in a world where I don't know, I don't know if anybody's ashamed of anything anymore. And uh, this was the condition that they were in. But it's worse because they were God's people. They knew better. And then God goes on to speak about not only how idolatry permeated outwardly in the land, it was just being done openly throughout the land, but then where he and only he could see that it also filled the lands but behind closed doors of the children of Israel. Sometimes we think that because uh, we uh, only sin or engage in idolatry in the privacy of our house, that somehow uh, that's different than doing it out in the open. And yet it isn't different in God's eyes because He lives in our house as much as He lives anywhere else in the world. 
And uh, so, but we do get this goofy thing in our mind that somehow it's not as bad if I do it behind closed doors as if I did it out in the open and everybody knew about it. And yet the Lord, wants, he, he denounces that because that was a part of their practice in that time. And it's a good thing for us not to get caught in, in our own mind of, of thinking that sin here is worse than sin here. Everything is done in the, in, the, in the presence of the Lord. All sin is done in God's living room because the whole world in the universe is His living room. Also behind the doors and their posts, you have set up your remembrance for you have uncovered yourself to those other than me and have gone up to them. Again, the imagery is, is this uh, spiritual adultery that's going on, the worship of the idols that were going on in the room. This is how he viewed it. And you have gone up to them and have enlarged your bed and made a covenant with them, and you have loved their bed where they saw your nudity. They saw everything about your life. What should have been reserved for me? And then uh, in verse 9, he said, you went, to be, uh, you went to the king with ointment and increased your perfumes. You sent your messengers far off and even descended to Sheol. You are wearied in the length of your way, yet you did not say there is no hope. And you have found the life of, uh, and have found the life of your hand. Therefore, you were not grieved. And so some of their idolatry took the form of uh, going to the surrounding nations for help in the crises that they found themselves in rather than going to God. And so uh, people are idols too. Again, um, to worship any created thing, people are created things. And so it's not just the worship of, you know, a new Escalade or a new this or home or whatever material kind of thing, but it is to make a relationship in life more important to us uh, than God and to trust in man rather than to trust in God. And so that's what he uh, denounces there and exposes in verses 9 and uh, 10. And then in verse 11, he comes to the cause of their lack of the fear of God. And he said, To whom have you been afraid or feared that you have lied and not remembered me, nor taken it to heart? Is it not... Is it not because I have held my peace of old that you do not fear me? This is one of the greatest um, uh, self-deceptions that a person can have, and all of us need to be careful of it. They were engaged in sin. They were engaged in idolatry. They were um, living in violation of God and His Word. And because God did not judge their sin in 24 hours or 48 hours or even in months, they came to the conclusion in their mind that, ah, God says all these things in His Word, but this is just the ideal. This is the, the, this is the high standard that nobody should ever try and live up to or whatever. And so God accepts that we live way below what He lays out in His Word, and, and He accepts that. And since He hasn't judged me for my idolatry now, and I've been doing this for six months or for two years, it must mean that He's okay with that. And that's, that's how it works in our minds. And then pretty soon the things that we kind of cringed when we did, we engaged in sin and thought, boy, God's going to hammer me in, in the next two hours or in the next 48 hours, and then it doesn't happen. And then this whole creep begins to occur in our lives where we begin to think that, oh, no, He's never going to judge us. It must be okay with Him. 
and there and because god doesn't judge us immediately we think he's never going to judge us at all trust me trust me he will judge us if there isn't repentance and he's got his finger on something in our lives and that's supposed to go he gives us space to repent but if we don't then he comes in lock stock and barrel and he knows how to do that in our lives individually. And it doesn't have to be some great, heinous kind of thing that would put you like in the, you know, Hall of Shame in Christianity Today magazine or something like that. It can just be something that God says, no, that's not a part of what I have for you and your life and my call and your plan upon my life. And you're starting to justify that in your mind, thinking that, you know, this is no big deal. And then all of a sudden God lets us know, no, it is a big deal. And uh, so it's the goodness of God that brings us to repentance, his patience with us in these kind of a places, never to be viewed as, ah, he doesn't care about it, or should view it as he's giving me space to repent, and if I don't repent, um, things are not going to go well for me. And, And Judah, of course, was a classic example of this. God didn't judge them, he didn't judge them, he warned, he warned, he warned, he warned in the same way that he brings conviction to our hearts. And then the day came when the Babylonians were... Uh, knocking on the door. And so that self-deception that it must be no big deal to God because he doesn't judge me immediately. I will declare your righteousness in your works for they will not profit you when you cry out. Let your collections of idols deliver you but the wind will carry them all away. A breath will take them away. When the day of judgment came he warned them your idols are going to be of no use to you in that day. Now again as we come now to the second part of verse 13 we remember that there's always a remnant among God's people. Judah was largely apostate and yet there's always a godly remnant, always a godly remnant. And so he begins to speak to them. They loved God. They were obeying God and and uh, and and wanting to please him. And so now he doesn't want them to think that he's you know speaking to them. He's got a different message for them and uh, for us here tonight. And so this is what he declares. But he who puts his trust in me shall possess the land and shall inherit my holy mountain. And so uh, one day even the the righteous would go uh, into judgment or they would go rather into Babylonian captivity because of uh, the sins of the people as a whole. And yet the Lord tells them, listen, you're different than everybody else. Uh, one day you're going to come back and possess the land. And one shall say, heap it up, heap it up. They prepare the way, take the stumbling block out of the way of my people. God says, I'm going to bring you back on a smooth path. Uh, I'm differentiating you from everyone else. I am going to bless you, even though it's kind of a miserable time in human history to be one of my people because you're not only having to fight the sin of the world and the sin of the Gentiles, but you're also having to deal with the persecution and the apostasy of Judaism as a whole. And it was, it was a difficult time to live for God. And, and uh, there are seasons like that in human history, and God wants to encourage them and us as well. For thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits, who, who inhabits eternity. Wow, that's a... That's a That's a big chair, isn't it? Man, 
He inhabits all of eternity all at once, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place with him who has a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of contrite ones. And so he brings up the importance of humility, the importance of um, contriteness, and, and essentially it's a rebuke of pride. Why would he talk about the importance of humility and contriteness in the middle of a denunciation of, uh, of, uh, of disobedience of his word? And uh, because the opposite of contriteness and humility is pride. And the single greatest expression of pride in all of the world is not someone walking around like this and looking down on you and got that obvious kind of arrogance. In the mind of God, in the eyes of God, the single greatest expression of pride is to just willfully and openly disobey his word. Pride means to uh, see myself above. It's one thing, and it's a terrible thing, to see myself above other people. But it's even worse to see myself above God and above his word. And so this is why he's talking to those who are humble, who are not in that category, and and he's commending them uh, for this, for their humility expressed in their obedience to his word. For I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry, for the spirit would fail before me. And God says, if I was angry all of the time, you know, over these things, if this wasn't going to be a season of my chastening, it was going to go on indefinitely, then everybody would get wiped out. And so he's letting them know that this season of chastening upon the Jews would uh, would have an end, and that would bring hope to the righteous. And the souls which I have made, for the iniquity of his covetousness, I was angry and struck him. I hid him and was angry, and he went on backsliding in the way of his heart. I have seen his ways and will heal him. I will also lead him and restore comforts to him and to his mourners. I create the fruit of the lips, peace, peace to him who is far off and to him who is near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. And so God said, yes, it's, it's a mess right now, but one day I'm going to bring spiritual healing to all of it. And so he did. But the wicked are like the troubled sea. Um, I have my doubts about the sea, period. I like to be on a boat about as big as the Titanic, but then I heard that one had some troubles, too. (laughs) So I get on these cruise ships once in a while, you know, and it's like, how big is this compared to the Titanic? The unsinkable. Right, Bob? It's a lot of water to be out in the middle of, isn't it? You better believe it. Every time I talk about water, I think about my good friend Bob here on things he he has compassion on me. So the wicked are like the troubled sea that cannot rest. In other words, it's at its churning most, you know, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. And that's a good thing for the righteous to hear. However much difficulty we may face in life as Christians, and how often, however much we may be tempted to leave uh, sometimes the... Um, the sacrifices that are required to stay faithful to the Lord and say, you know, I'm going to go over to the dark side like everybody else or into the gray side like, you know, other people are doing. And then here's this warning. No, you know, you may gain some things, but what you'll do is you'll lose your peace. 
And the wonderful thing about us as Christians is we walk with the Lord for a while. We become so dependent upon His peace that, again, we can't live without it for a day. And it's a wonderful protection against uh, walking away from the Lord. In chapter 58, um, uh, God denounces the hypocritical hypocritical, um, fast of the uh, of Judah and he begins it by saying cry out spare not lift up your voice like a trumpet and tell my people their transgression the house of Jacob their sins and so I don't know how many people would put up with this he said you know when you blow a trumpet that really gets people's attention so he's telling Isaiah he says I want you to raise your voice and I want you to say it loud I want you to get the attention of my people concerning their sin so he's upset with their sin and their transgression. Transgression is a little different than sin. Transgression is deliberate. Uh, sometimes we can sin uh, even as a new Christian, and then we're reading our Bible for the first time, and then we realize, oh, that's a sin. But it was a sin we didn't know it at the time. Once we know that it's a sin and we commit it, then that's transgression and it's a little more serious business. And so God says, I want you to denounce the transgression Uh, of my people confront them with their sin and then he declared kind of the spiritual environment of judah at this time here they are they're engaged in all of this sin and private and openly and everything but you know when shabbat came and the sabbath they'd go there and they'd offer all the sacrifices and they'd listen to the preaching of the rabbis and and so forth as god brings out in verse two yet they seek me daily so they went to the uh, temple daily to be a part of the burnt offerings and the services there and delight to know my ways they listen to the teaching again of the rabbis the ancient version of pastors as a nation that did righteousness and so outwardly you'd look and say this is a righteous country and the, and did not forsake the ordinances of their god they give the appearance of being completely obedient to the lord they ask of me the ordinances of justice and they take light uh, uh, they take delight in approaching god and so this was the question that they had why have we fasted they say and this is the complaint that they make to god why have we fasted and you have not seen why have we afflicted our souls and you take no notice so here they are they're living a double life and and then they're fasting in order to have some kind of influence or impact with god related to circumstances in their life god is not answering their prayers even when they're coupled with with fasting and so they think the problem is with god god why you know what's the use you tell us to fast here we are we're fasting and you're not answering our prayers and this is legitimate in verse three this isn't tongue-in-cheek this is a a very dangerous self-deception that they're in the middle of in verse three because they are convinced in their own mind that they are okay with God and, uh, and that even though they're living this life of disobedience, they're still going through to church, they're still going to, you know, praying their prayers at night or whatever would be the equivalent for us as, as Christians and all. And they've got this disconnect in their life. Here's the spiritual part of my life, and then here's this other part of my life. I mean, we've got to be real. Nobody can expect anybody to live like this all of the time, right? I mean, you've got to have this two things. You've got the Saturday thing or the Sunday thing, and then you've got the Monday thing through Saturday deal that you got to live and end all. And so they work this whole thing out in their minds. And it, it's a terrible self-deception when a person believes that that's okay 
and, uh, and we can be prone to that. And that idea that this compartmentalization of my Christian life away from what I am, away from spiritual environments, that all of that is okay. The problem with a self-deception is it's very hard for a person to talk an, an, a person out of being in that place. When I'm deceived by another person, then another person can come and say, no, 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 that isn't true. What they're saying isn't, isn't right at all, and here's why it's wrong. And we go... Aha! We don't we don't hold on as um, uh, fervently to a deception that someone else has put us under. We'll release that quicker when we come into contact with the truth. But a self-deception, a lie that we've convinced ourselves of, that's a hard one because another person can come and speak to us, but because this deception is come from ourselves, I'll tell you, we embrace it, we will defend it, and it's a dangerous thing to be self-deceived. The only, the single great protection against self-deception is the Word of God. And you take the Word of God out of the human condition, and we're all going to become self-deceived in the course of time. I like in James, he talks about the Word of God as a mirror and where we go to the Word of God on a daily basis or when we're facing something that's going on in our life and, God, how am I supposed to handle this and how do you see this? And we go to the Word of God and the Word of God will always tell us the truth. Mirror, mirror on the wall, who's the fairest of them all? Who's your favorite at Calvary Chapel Modesto? And then there I am, and my name is at number 1,200. Everybody's ahead of me. But the Word of God is like that. It will tell us the truth uh, when no one else will tell us the truth, and we won't even tell ourselves the truth. And that's why when a person is self-deceived in the way that Judah was self-deceived, the very first casualty in their life will be the Word of God. They will move away from the Word of God. I was having breakfast with a friend of mine, and he talked about a sermon he heard when he was uh, younger in way. And the guy, the guy said something like, uh, crooked walls don't like a plumb line. And that's the truth. And when our life gets crooked, we don't like to turn to the plumb line. So it's always a dangerous thing to move away from the Word of God. It's always a sign that I'm starting to hide something. And in uh, the Word of God is this great protection uh, for us in a way that nothing else uh, is. So this is the deception that they were, uh, that they were under. And then the Lord uh, gives them the real reason for the fact that he, he was eager. He wanted to bless their prayers. He wanted to answer their prayers. He wanted to honor their fast. But he didn't because of the sin in their life. And he lays out some of the violations of, of his commandments that they were engaged in. In fact, in the day uh, of your fast, you find pleasure. You live for pleasure. You've got a lot of resources and you're doing good and all. And then you exploit all of your laborers. You've got them starving to death and their kids starving to death. You could pay them more. You could take care of them. The law of Moses talked about taking care of the poor and the powerless. And they were disregarding that. And so the exploitation of your labors, indeed you fast for strife and debate, 
and to strike with the fist of wickedness. And so they were uh, one thing at church when they wanted something from God, you know, and lifting it up in prayer and asking for God in their fasting, and yet they were treating people in an abusive way. And the Lord, in essence, as we saw this morning, tells them your fasting is useless and, and no fasting is effectual if the life of the person that's fasting is not obedient to my word. They're not trying to be obedient. Nobody's perfect, but they're serious about obedience. They're not living in willful disobedience. And then number two, they are being gracious in their dealings with other people. It is silly for me to think that I can turn to God and anything I'm going to get from God is grace, that I can turn to God and request grace of him when I'm being graceless in my treatment of other people. So these are the two things, the disobedience and the, and the mistreatment of other people. It will kill the effectiveness of fasting. And that's why uh, he confronted them with this. He said, you will not fast as you do this day to make your voice heard on high. It is, is it a fast that I have chosen, a day for a man to afflict his soul? Is it to bow down his head like a bulrush? and to spread out sackcloth and ashes. Would you call this a fast and an acceptable day to the Lord? God said, that's not the fast that I've chosen. That's not how I've taught fasting in my word. And then he goes on to speak about the fasting that he has chosen. Is this not the fast that I have chosen to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, to let the oppressed go free, and that you break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry, and that you bring your house uh, to your house the poor who are cast out, when you see the naked that you cover him, and not hide yourself from your own flesh? In other words, these people were hiding themselves from their own family members that were uh, in need. And so uh, the Lord speaks here about the fasting that's being done properly is in the, the, where a person can expect their fasting to be uh, effective is where they're resisting oppression and they're resisting uh, injustice within uh, the culture. And then they also have a care for the poor and the needy. And then in verse 8, as we looked at this morning, I'm not going to go into it with any kind of a depth. I would refer you to uh, this morning's teaching online to tear into it. I think it's very, very profitable. But he lays out um, how it is that the, the circumstances in which uh, that we hid in life where fasting it can be important and, again, effective in uh, receiving God's blessing in these circumstances. And I just think it's a tremendous list. I'll re- just say that at least related to this morning. It is incredible to me that God would... And here in chapter 58 is the single great chapter on fasting in all of the Bible and that he lays out here that, listen, when you hit these circumstances in life, be sure and pray to me, but don't be afraid to add a fast to it because I'm eager to bless you and answer your prayers. That's what he wanted to do for Judah. That's why he's rebuking them. He wants to bless us, and he wanted to get them in a place where he could do that. And so he said, Then your light shall break forth like the morning, your healing shall spring forth speedily, and your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard, and then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry, and he will say, Here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, 
the pointing of the finger and speaking wickedness. If you extend your soul to the hungry and satisfy the afflicted soul, then your light shall dawn in the darkness and your darkness shall be as the noonday. The Lord will guide you continually, satisfy uh, your soul in drought, strengthen your bones, and you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. Those from among you shall build the old waste places. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repair of the breach and restore of streets to dwell in. And then he deals specifically with their violation of the Sabbath in verse 13. He said, if you turn away your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on the holy day, they were disregarding the Sabbath. It was to be a day of rest for the Jews. We are not under the Sabbath as Christians. Jesus has fulfilled the Sabbath for us. He is our rest uh, seven days a week, spiritually speaking. But the Sabbath was the, the obedience to the Sabbath was the single greatest way out of all of the law of Moses, the single greatest way historically that the Jews expressed their uh, love for God and their obedience to God. And so in violating the Sabbath here, it's like God is saying, look what you've even done with the Sabbath. Uh, you're, you are so, so far away from me that you don't even realize it. They were violating. They think the last thing they would throw away was the Sabbath, and yet um, they were disobeying in that place as well. And so because of the unique place that the Sabbath played in the heart of the Jew as an expression of their devotion to God, uh, the violation of this was especially um, serious, and the Lord confronts them with it. If you turn away your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, the holy day of the Lord honorable, and shall honor him, not doing your own ways, not finding your own pleasure, nor seeking your own words, but using the day to seek him as God intended, then you shall delight yourself in the Lord and I will cause you to ride on the high hills of the earth and feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father, the, word, the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And so God said, if you'll just turn back to me, obey the Sabbath, then blessing will follow. Uh, chapter 59. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened uh, that it cannot save, nor his ear heavy that it cannot hear. Um, don't think of God as this gigantic uh, Tyrannosaurus Rex. Gigantic body, huge tail, gigantic mouth and all, but those little tiny arms always seemed a little goofy to me, didn't it? I mean, I'd have those little plastic models and we'd have the fights with anyway. Enough about all of that. But when it talks about God's arm not uh, being short, in the Old Testament... The, when it speaks of God's arm, it's speaking of his power. And uh, so the complaint here among God's people was, listen, God is, God is not listening. The only reason we could be in the difficulty that we're in is because God either uh, doesn't hear our prayers or he can't hear our prayers, he's going deaf, or he doesn't have the power to answer our prayers. So they're in a mess. Their life is a mess. Because that's where unrighteousness leads. I mean, the, the, the Bible way is the way to live. And so to violate that, things are going to become a mess. 
and they thought, my life is a mess because as I'm lifting my prayers up, asking God to help me, even though they're in, in this disobedience, they say, well, the reason must be either God doesn't have the power to help me or he, uh, isn't, uh, uh, he's powerless to, to also hear my prayers. And the Lord is going to confront them again from that self-deception, coming to that wrong conclusion. And the Lord said, no, that's not the problem at all. I've got plenty of strength and my hearing is really good. And uh, so I'm thinking about a lot of hearing things right here at the moment, but I'm not going to bore you with it. So the Lord says, here's the real problem in verse 2. But your iniquities have separated you from uh, God. That's the barrier. No problem with me, God says. Your sin has put a barrier between you and me, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. It wasn't that God couldn't hear. But he wouldn't hear in the sense of then answering those prayers. And the Lord then gives them examples of their sin. For your hands are defiled with blood. And the idea is shedding of innocent blood, murder, assault, this kind of thing, creating bloodshed. Your fingers are filled, uh, defiled with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongues have muttered perversity. The word perversity means badness. It's just uh, people's mouths were just sewers in the terms of, of gossip and slander and injustice and all kinds of things. And again, he's talking about his own people here and all of this. He says, this is what's the reason the prayers aren't getting answered. Not because I don't have the power or that I don't hear them. No one calls for justice, nor does any plead for truth. They trust in empty words and speak lies. They conceive evil and bring forth iniquity. And so all of their doing, all of their thinking, all of their speaking was given over to uh, sin, God says. And then here's the influence that they had uh, upon the world around them and upon one another. They hatch vipers' eggs and they weave the spider's web. He who eats of their eggs dies, and that from what, uh, and and from that which is crushed, a viper breaks out. And so he said the lives that they were living were like a viper. In other words, they did harm to other people, and. Uh, and their uh, and their effect was weaving of spider webs, and he talks about here in verse six, their webs shall not become garments, in other words, the life that they were living, what they were teaching would be a disappointment, so everything about their lives either hurt people or disappointed people ultimately. So, and, and he likens this to going out in public, uh, being dressed in a spider's web and going out into public uh, dressed like that. What's going to happen? Oh, you're going to end up ashamed of that. It's going to disappoint you. It's not going to cover you properly. And that's the, what their lives were like, the wickedness. It just harmed people and it, and it led people into a life of disappointment. Nor will they cover themselves with their works. Their works are works of iniquity. And the acts of violence is in their hands. Their feet run to evil. They make haste to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Wasting and destruction are in their paths. The way of peace they have not known. And there is no justice in their ways. They have made themselves crooked paths. Whoever uh, takes that way shall not know peace. And so he says, you want to know the answer? Why there's a separation, a barrier between you and me? God says, it's never, ever my fault. Never my fault. It is because of, uh, he confronted them with the fact that it was because of their sin. And then 
Isaiah acknowledges here in verse 9 uh, the truth of God's assessment concerning Judah. Therefore, justice is far uh, from us, nor does righteousness overtake us. And so uh, the, the result of all of this, their unrighteousness and their uh, rebellion against God's word, it ended up uh, producing, uh, having effects upon the society. And Isaiah recognized the, the, uh, the result of sin upon the society. Therefore, justice is far from us, nor does righteousness overtake us. The land is filled with injustice. Uh, we look for light, but there is darkness. It creates a very dark culture for brightness, uh, but we walk in blackness. And so uh, it, it, it brought this dark element to society. And then it, uh, the other effect that it has is, is it produces a blindness in people. We grope for the wall like the blind. And we grope as if we had no eyes. We stumble at noonday as at twilight. We are as dead men in desolate places. We all growl like bears. And so um, I never like to see a bear. Um, I like them at the zoo. But other than that, uh, one time a, a friend took me up to Kennedy Meadows and uh, put all of the food way up high in a tree and everything and put the trees, the horses over here that we rode up there. I was sore for a week after that, by the way. And um, so it was a great trip and everything. And they put all of the food and everything up away and all. And what's the reason for this and all? And it's the bears, you know. Well, And then we're sleeping on cots like about 12 inches off of the ground. Aren't we bear food too? What's... Uh... What ha- how, how does this work? He said, this is why I brought the gun. He had a gun. One gun. Where's my gun? What if I get eaten in the middle of the night? You can save yourself, but what about my... So I don't know much about bears. I don't want to know much about bears. And, uh, but a growling one can't be very good. And so, but it's, it's really talking about uh, the, because of wickedness permeating Judah, the culture became very aggressive, kind of growling like a bear. Uh, everybody was a danger to one another. And, and they will moan sadly like doves. The culture became sad as a result. And we took... Uh, Look for justice, but there is none for salvation, but it is far from us. For our transgressions are multiplied before you, and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us, and as for our iniquities, we know them. And and so Isaiah is saying, the decisions that we've made to abandon God has produced a culture in which there is no hope. We have since we've, we've abandoned God, He is the only hope for pulling a group of people out of this condition. Now we are hopeless because we look at, uh, there, there aren't, human beings are not going to lift us out of the depth of where we have put ourselves. And so you start to get a little bit of that kind of a feel living in the world even today with um, people moving away from God, nations moving away from God, our nation moving away from God, and looking and saying, now they've moved so far, the laws are changing, uh, the morality of the country is changing, and you get that realization that even though the culture is more unjust than it's ever been in my lifetime, darker than it's ever been in my lifetime, more spiritually blind than it's ever been in my lifetime, and more aggressive and threatening, more sad than it's ever been in my lifetime, more hopeless than it's ever been in my lifetime. It's all because of that moving away from God, and there's that realization the only one who can turn this around now is God and the hope for a revival. Well, this isn't something new in human history. This was something they were feeling 
uh, so many thousands uh, of years ago. In transgressing and lying against the Lord and departing from our God and speaking and, and uh, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart words of falsehood, and justice is turned back and righteousness stands afar off. For truth has fallen in the street. That's a terrible thing when truth is dead in the street. And equity cannot enter, so truth fails, and he who departs from evil uh, makes himself a prey. And so truth fails so, uh, so completely, even in Judah, that, that it turns the country into anarchy. That's what he's describing here. You move away from God's morality, his definitions of right and wrong. You move to man's definitions, which are a slide rule, because what you, I may set the standard in one place, and then someone who comes over here, he's more perverted than I am. He's more wicked than I am. He's more violent than I am, and he wants to slide it over here. And ultimately, you move away from God's standard. Then you begin to sin against conscience, and you take conscience out, and you take God's Word out, and now you've got anarchy. And history has taught us that over and over again. It's what he's describing here. And one of the signs that you've got spiritual anarchy on your hands, and spiritual anarchy occurs long before physical anarchy does, and the sign that all of that is is on the move here is that he who departs from evil becomes a prey. It becomes dangerous to be godly. It becomes dangerous to follow God and to obey God. Why? Because a person's life then brings conviction. It was like um, uh, when they wanted to kill uh, Lazarus because Jesus raised him from the dead. The miracle that his life was was a testimony to the power of God, the existence of God, the truth of what Christ taught. And so our lives too, uh, when the world starts killing Christians for simply being Christians, you've got a spiritual anarchy already uh, well-developed, and it's turning very quickly into a physical uh, anarchy. And then the Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice, and he saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no intercessor. God looked at the whole situation, and he marveled that there wasn't a human uh, being that was rising up against all of this as a a way of turning the tide. And therefore, uh, because the situation could not be corrected, once it gets to that place, no human being can correct it. and, and therefore, his own arm brought salvation for him, and his own righteousness, it sustained him. For he put on righteousness as a breastplate. He will never allow righteousness to die. If, if it can no longer be protected, even uh, and, and by a godly remnant, because they're being slaughtered in the world, God says, I'll stand up for righteousness. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on the garments of vengeance for clothing and was clad with zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, accordingly, he will repay fury to his adversaries, speaking about the ungodly Jews within Judah, recompense to his enemies, talking about Gentile oppressors uh, of, of the righteous in uh, Judah, the coastlands he will fully repay, and so shall they fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. When the enemy comes in like a flood, the Spirit of the Lord will lift up a standard against him. 
evil and wickedness will not prevail in the world. God, the world is headed to its, to its God-appointed end, and God will make sure that righteousness and holiness and his standard prevails um, even when it looks lost to us and we realize we have crossed a line. This is the point of no return. God, we need a miracle. And that's where Judah was, and God is the God of miracles. And he stepped in, but would be very uh, hard kind of path and hard lesson for them. He stepped in, and our generation, the same thing is true. So you got truth dying in the streets, God's standard of right and wrong being mocked and sneered at and, um, and uh, educated against and all of these kind of things, but we don't have to worry that ultimately it's going to prevail. God knows how to defend his word, and if he alone is left to defend it, then he will uh, make sure that it, that it does prevail, uh, even if he is the only one. And then he declares there in verse 20 that the Redeemer will come to Zion, and the Redeemer is speaking of the Messiah there, uh, that, that he is going to come uh, to Zion and to those who turn from transgression in Jacob, says the Lord. And so in talking here in verse uh, 20 and verse uh, 21 here, as he's, he's talking about the Redeemer coming to Zion, um, establishing these, uh, these kind of, of things, it has a fulfillment in, uh, in Isaiah's day or in Judah's day when they come back from their captivity, the Babylonians. But the farthest fulfillment and the fullest fulfillment of these verses that close chapter um, uh, 59 and then on into chapter 60 where we'll go next week, the far fulfillment and fullest fulfillment has to do with Jesus' return at his second coming. And so the Redeemer will come to Zion and uh, you look at the world, and when is Jesus going to come in his second coming? At the end of the great tribulation period. And the world is going to be a mess. I mean, it's going to, what, what is going to be left of it? God's going to move mountains and destruction and judgment and seals and, and bulls and, and all of the, and judgment that's going to be poured out uh, upon it. It's going to look like, you know, justice is never going to prevail. This is, people are so wicked. Why won't, you know, people turn away from their wickedness and turn to God in mass? Now, many people will become saved during the great tribulation period, and they'll be martyred for their faith, and they'll end up in heaven. But such a large portion of the world will continue their rebellion against God. But again, God will not allow his word or his righteousness to be defeated. And so he comes in at the end of the seven years. It is dark as dark can be. The Antichrist has more control over just the darkness of the whole thing. And, and how is this ever going to turn around, the righteous would say. And there are people that are going to survive the great tribulation, come to know Christ during that period, be alive in the midst of that darkness, and, uh, and then how is this ever going to get turned around? And then they're going to see it. They're going to see Jesus come and his foot is going to step upon the Mount of Olives. It is going to split and then he is going to make his entrance into Jerusalem at his second coming and then establish. So even in the worst case scenario, Judah and all of what they were doing was just kind of a picture, a little, 
uh, foretaste of how dark the world will ultimately come and then how God will defend his word and his truth and his plan for the world and for mankind in Jesus' second coming. The Redeemer shall come to Zion, verse 20, and to those who turn from transgression in Jacob, says the Lord. As for me, says the Lord, this is my covenant with them, my spirit who is upon you, and my words which I have put in your mouth shall not depart from your mouth, nor shall the mouth of your descendants, nor from the mouth of your descendants' descendants, says the Lord, from this time forevermore. And so what happens is, is when Jesus comes, establishes his kingdom age, thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth, everything that happens on the earth is going to be uh, coming from two sources. Number one, the Holy Spirit, and number two, God's Word. And so God's righteousness, His standard, one day is going to prevail uh, despite even the greatest darkness of the devil and uh, the world and the flesh and all of that in that mix. That day is coming where everything is going to be. Uh, he's going to protect that righteousness by His Holy Spirit and by His Word. Let's stand together and we'll close in prayer tonight.